If you would, please open your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Last week, Duane began our series in the book of Hebrews. He looked at most of chapter 1 and then a couple of verses into chapter 2. And today we're going to be paying particular attention to Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 15. Now there's a couple verses between where Duane left off and where I'm picking up. And so before we read the passage this morning that we'll be looking at, I want to give you a little bit of context as to what the author is doing. So the, the portion of scripture that we'll be passing over here this morning in the context that I want to give you is verses 5 through 9. And in these verses, the author here is showing us the heights of glory that mankind has fallen from and how Jesus, through his incarnation and death, comes to restore man to a position of glory and honor. And as we pick up in verse 10, the author begins to meditate on how perfectly fitting a Savior Jesus is for mankind. And so let's look at these five verses in that context of the the author showing us how perfect a Savior Jesus is for men. We'll begin reading in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil." And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Father, we want to see Jesus as a perfect Savior for us. That's what your word is showing us this morning. So I pray that you would open up our eyes and open up our hearts to see this truth and to see his glory. And that our faith might rise as Christ does. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Any failure to live in faithfulness to God ultimately comes from a lack of faith. Any breaking of God's perfect standard comes from a lack of believing that Jesus is better If we fail to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, it is owing ultimately to a lack of faith. If we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves, it is owing ultimately to a lack of believing that Jesus is better. Now, if this is true, that all of our sin, all of our breaking of God's law finds its root in a lack of faith, and if we desire to live obedient lives to God, then we must be fiercely committed to growing and strengthening our faith. 
And the way a Christian grows and strengthens their faith is by expanding and growing the object of their faith. And the object of every Christian's faith is a person, is Jesus Christ. Our faith will only grow as we grow in our understanding and our love for Jesus. So as Jesus grows in our minds and in our hearts, so too will our faith grow. And it is for this reason that we have chosen to study the book of Hebrews. Our goal here in this series is to lay before our hearts the glory of Jesus as he is revealed to us in this book so that our faith would increase so that our faith would grow as Jesus grows in our minds and in our hearts. Last week, Duane unfolded how Jesus is better, how Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets and the angels. And today we will see how he is a perfectly fitting Savior for mankind. And so as we open up the scripture here this morning, these five verses... Our aim is for our faith to grow, for our faith to be strengthened as we see how perfectly fitting it was for Jesus to be the Savior of his people. And as we begin looking here in verse 10, the author begins by showing us that Jesus became a fitting Savior for us by living a life marked by suffering. Look with me at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now the author begins his explanation of the life of Christ with a statement about God and his purpose in redemption. Look with me again here. For it was fitting that he, God for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. So we see here that this first statement about God is that all things exist by God's power and for God. God, by His power, has caused all things to exist for His glory. Everything is for him. The second statement that he makes is his aim in redemption is to bring many sons to glory. And here the author speaks about the redemption of God's people using family language. God's intention in sending Jesus to redeem his people was not simply to save for himself servants, but to save for himself children to bring children into his family. Now the question that we should be conjuring up here in our minds is why does our author begin his explanation of the suffering life of Christ with these two statements about God's power in creating everything for his glory and about his purpose in redemption? What's the connection here? But what the author is seeking to do is he is telling us why it was fitting that Jesus should be made perfect through a life of suffering. The first thing that we see here is that God planned it this way for his glory. 
Just as God brought all things into existence for His glory, before time began, God planned redemption. God planned that Jesus would come as a man and live a life of suffering that we live in order to redeem us. And He planned it this way for His glory. This is why it was fitting that Jesus should do this, because it was God's plan and purpose. But not only this, we see here that Christ had to live a life of suffering in order for God's people to be saved from their sin. In order for God to bring many sons to glory, Jesus had to live a life of suffering. And we'll see why that is in a moment. But this is the connection. The author is telling us why it was fitting for Jesus to endure a life of suffering. Now, this truth would have been extremely encouraging to the original audience and to us as well. Perhaps not to the same degree, whereas the audience in Hebrews was suffering, I believe, far more than we are. But to know that God planned Christ's life of suffering for a glorious purpose would have given them much hope that their suffering was for a glorious purpose as well. That just as God was in control of the suffering of Christ, He too is in control of their suffering, and that it is for a beautiful purpose. And as we work through the book of Hebrews, we will see what that beautiful purpose is for God's people. So, having shown us why it was fitting for Jesus to be made perfect through a life of suffering, now our author tells us how Jesus was made perfect, namely, through suffering. Let's read it again. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now we read here that Jesus was made perfect. In order for us to grasp what the author is seeking to communicate here, we must understand that he is not speaking about Jesus' moral life. Because Scripture is clear that there is no need for Jesus to be made morally perfect. From, from conception through all eternity, Jesus was and always will be completely sinless. Completely morally perfect. So that begs the question then, how then was Jesus made perfect? In what sense is the author using perfection here? Now, we need only remember the context to make sense of what he is saying. Let's not forget that the author here in the big picture is showing us how God made Jesus a fitting or suitable Savior for men in general and for God's people specifically. And now given this context, we understand that Jesus being made perfect means that he was made a Savior perfectly qualified to save his people. Through this life of suffering, he was made qualified to save his people. You see, Jesus couldn't just descend from heaven, get on the cross, and bear our sins. He had to go through a qualification process. That's what the text is telling us here. And the process by which Jesus was qualified to be our Savior is through suffering. 
The suffering Jesus experienced throughout his life by way of temptation and in his death qualified him to be a perfect savior for men. He had to go through this in order to be a substitute for us. In order for Jesus to be a fit savior for mankind, he had to live a life that man would live. He had to endure a life in the fallen world and perfectly keep the law of God in order to be made a perfect savior. And what the author is really getting at here is that without the life of Jesus, we cannot be saved. We often put so much emphasis on the death and resurrection of Jesus, and rightly so, but we often completely disregard his life as if it's not important. Without the life of Jesus, we cannot be saved. And the reason why is because without Jesus living that life, he is not a fitting Savior for us. And the beauty of this is that Jesus knew this before he entered into this world. Jesus, in eternity past, as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, willingly, knowingly enters into our suffering to save his people. He knew that he wasn't going to be able to just come out of heaven and get on the cross. He would have to walk a life that man would live in order to be a fitting Savior for us. And so we see the glory of Jesus' life here and how he was a perfectly fitting Savior to save us men. So we see that Jesus was made a perfect Savior through living a fitting life, a life marked by suffering. And now the author reveals to us the fitting relationship that Jesus has with the children God is bringing to glory. And we see this in verses 11 through 13. We'll begin by looking at verses 11 and 12, which define for us the source of the relationship between Jesus and God's children. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now here again, the author reveals the source of the relationship between Jesus and his people. It says, for he who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, God's people, all have one source. Now there's some disagreement about who this source actually is. Some people believe it's Adam. Some people believe it's Abraham. Others believe it is God. And I believe the reference here to the source must be God. And when we read it in this way, we understand the text to be saying that both Jesus and his people have one source, that is, they both have one Father, God. And I believe that this is proven as the text continues to unfold because it says that this is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, because we are in the same Family, we share the same Father. Jesus 
to prove, uh, the author here to prove that Jesus is unashamed to call us brothers, he quotes Psalm 22, 22, which finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. It is fitting that Jesus should call us his brothers and sisters because we share the same Father. If you are a Christian today, Jesus joyfully calls you brother or sister. Have you ever thought about that before? Have you ever thought about how astonishing that truth is? Astonishing not only for us, but also for the original audience. Why was it astonishing for the original audience? Do we remember their struggle at the time? Do we remember what they're going through? At the time this letter was written, the original audience was being tempted to disassociate themselves with Christ. They were being tempted to leave Jesus. They were tempted to believe that Jesus was not better than where they came from. They were in many ways ashamed to call Jesus their brother. Do we not find ourselves often in the same place as the original audience? Do we not often find ourselves ashamed to call Jesus our brother? At work, at school, at home, in the marketplace, are we willing to joyfully proclaim the relationship we have with Jesus? This family relationship that he is identifying here. That's why it's a beautiful truth. Because we so often are ashamed to call Jesus our brother. And yet he unashamedly, joyfully calls us his brothers and sisters. Because he knows that we share the same father. God as our father. Our author here shows us Jesus' willingness to call us family. Now he shows us the proof of Jesus' relationship with us through quoting Isaiah 8, 17, and 18. It says in verse 13, And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Through this quotation of Isaiah 8, 17, and 18, our author is showing us how we come to share in this fitting family relationship with Jesus. The first quote in reference to Jesus says, I, Jesus, will put my trust in him, speaking of Jesus' entrusting himself to the Father. And the second quote, Behold, I and the children God has given me, shows that God's children will also put their trust in God. It is the mutual trust that Jesus and believers have in God that forms the foundation of their relationship as brothers and sisters in the family of God. What is the significance of all of this family language here in the text? We've seen that it would already have stung the original audience a little bit to know that they're being tempted to disassociate themselves with Christ while he unashamedly professes them as brothers and sisters. But I think that this also would have been extremely encouraging to the original audience. 
Because understand, in the first century, when a Jew would convert to Christianity, in many cases, they would have lost everything, including their family relationships. They would have lost their blood relatives, their blood family. They would have become loners. So to hear God say that we are now part of His family, that we have a new father, that we have a new elder brother who has established this relationship with us as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have a new family of believers would have been extremely encouraging, would have strengthened their faith to know that they have a new family. And so we see here that it is fitting that Jesus should call us brothers for we both share the same Father. And Jesus, as a fitting Savior, establishes a fitting relationship with God's people. So Jesus lived a fitting life marked by suffering and he relates to us in a fitting relationship, a familial relationship. And now the author comes to show us how Jesus secured this relationship through a fitting death. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the author here shows us that Jesus' death was a fitting death because of what it accomplished for God's people. First, we see that his death was a fitting death and that through death he defeated the devil. We see this in verse 14. And the author begins by showing us what we have already seen. That in order for the death of Christ to be effective for God's people, he had to share in flesh and blood with them. He had to share in their humanity. He had to live the life that they would live. And the reason that Jesus took on flesh was so that through death, he could defeat the one who has power over death, named here the devil. Now we see here the glory of Jesus' death and what he has done, not only in what he accomplishes through it, but how he accomplishes it. Not only that he destroys the power of the devil, but how he goes about doing it. Jesus not only defeats the devil and renders him powerless over God's people, but he does this through dying. Do we see the connection here? God could have destroyed the power of the devil from a distance, but instead he in the person of Jesus enters this world as a man and uses the devil's greatest weapon, death, to completely strip him of all his power. Do we not see here the beauty and the glory in Jesus' death and how he accomplished destroying the works of the devil? He used the devil's greatest enemy against him, rendering him powerless through dying. You see, Jesus' death was a fitting death because it destroyed the power of the devil and because it mocked the devil's power 
as he rendered him powerless. This is the glory that we see here in Jesus. But not only was Jesus' death a fitting death because it defeated the devil, it is also a fitting death because it delivered the fearful. And we see this in verse 15. Jesus' death was fitting because it delivered those who were slaves of the fear of death. The fear of death is the greatest fear that mankind has. From the moment that Adam and Eve took and ate of that fruit and rebelled against God, death and the fear of it has shaken humanity to its core. But the fear of death not only shakes us and causes us to tremble, but it also enslaves us, as the text says. For more than anything else, the fear of death directs, influences, and shapes the way that we live our lives. Now, those of you who are here who have not entrusted yourself to Jesus, allow me to speak to you for a moment. Do you not live your life under the enslaving fear of death? Perhaps you are tormented by the thoughts of death. Maybe you live in constant anxiety about taking your final breath. Or maybe you busy your mind and you busy your life so as to not have to think about the certainty of your own death. Either way, you are enslaved to the fear of it. It is controlling the way that you live your life. But there is great hope for you in this passage. You see, the glory of this passage is that the Son of God took on flesh and died in order to deliver God's people from the fear of death that we might live as free people. And hear me, this is what the text is saying to you this morning. If you repent of your sin and entrust yourself to Jesus by faith, the text over and over and over is screaming to you that if you do this, you will find in Jesus a perfect Savior. That's what the text is proving all along. That Jesus is a perfect Savior, not for the angels, but for men and women. Jesus is a perfect Savior, and if you come to Him and entrust yourself to Him, you will find Him to be such. You see, the issue is not that you don't know, the the issue is not that you don't know that you're a sinner. You know that you're a sinner, you know you've made mistakes. The issue is that you don't know where to go with your sin. And the text is showing you clearly where you need to go. I would encourage you to throw yourself on Jesus this morning. Now, this is an appropriate application to unbelievers, but what I find most interesting is that the author is not speaking to unbelievers. He's not trying to evangelize here in this text. He's talking to people who already believe in Jesus. So the question we must ask is, What does all this talk of deliverance from the fear of death have to do with people, believers, who are supposedly already delivered from that fear? What does this say to us as Christians? Well, we must not forget, again, the situation of the audience. We must not forget that they were in a crisis of faith. 
They were fearful because of the trials they were enduring for following Christ. Perhaps they were even fearful of death itself. And this is what was causing them to be tempted to leave Jesus. And this tells us something very significant that we cannot miss. It tells us that although Jesus has delivered his people from the fear of death, they can still come under its power if their faith is weak. You see, this goes back to what we said at the beginning. That our faith is only as strong as our understanding and our love for Jesus. So if our understanding and our love of Jesus is low, so too will our faith be low. And if our faith is low, then we will be able to come under the power of fear. Not only fear of death, but every other sort of fear. And you see, what our author is seeking to do is to expel the fear his audience has come under by strengthening their faith, by growing their faith. And how does he grow their faith? By lifting up the glory of Jesus and allowing them to gaze upon it. So that as they see Jesus as glorious and beautiful, their faith will ascend to the same heights. Jesus is calling us to the same this morning. If we long to be rid of the fear that often paralyzes us, not only the fear of death, but every other fear, if we long to be free from it, we must rest our faith on the death of Christ that delivers us from it. We must see the glory in Jesus' death. Our faith must ascend to those heights that we might no longer be enslaved to fear. Jesus' death is a fitting death because it delivers us from the power of the devil and it delivers us from the fear of death. So we have seen here in totality the glory of Christ and how he is a perfectly fitting savior for us. He lived a fitting life marked by suffering. He establishes a fitting relationship with God's people and he dies a fitting death. For them. Now, what I want to do is conclude with this. In totality of what we've seen this morning, how does seeing that Jesus is a perfectly fitting Savior grow our faith? Two things. First, as Christians, we have possession of the perfectly fitting Savior that we need. Not that we just need it at our conversion, but that we need every single day. We have possession of the perfectly fitting Savior who willingly chose to enter into our suffering in order to save us from death. We have a perfectly fitting Savior who joyfully calls us brothers and sisters We have a perfectly fitting Savior who gloriously destroys the devil's power over us. And we have possession of a perfectly fitting Savior who graciously delivers us from fear. You see, this is the the perfectly fitting Savior that we need every single day in order for our faith 
to not become weak. So as Christians, we have possession of the perfectly fitting Savior that we need. Secondly, and finally, we as Christians have possession of the perfectly fitting Savior that the world needs, that all men and women need. I remember when God began to sink the reality and the truth of this into my heart. I was sitting in my living room reading a book that I've spoken to you about before, a book of sermons by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs. The title of the book is Gospel Revelation, and what he does in the book is is essentially a a compilation of his sermons on the glory and excellency of Jesus Christ as prophet, priest, and king. And he spends numerous and numerous and numerous, a hundred or so pages, just laying before your eyes and your heart the glory of Jesus. And I remember sitting there and realizing that Jesus was using this to sink this truth into my heart. It's not like I didn't know it. It's just like I didn't believe it or I didn't understand it. I began thinking as I was reading these pages, Jesus is the perfectly fitting Savior that I need. Every single day, He meets every need that I have. But more importantly, what God began to sink into my heart that day, and those days as I was reading that, was that Jesus is the perfectly fitting Savior that the world needs. That every person that I come in contact with that I know is not a believer, this is the perfectly fitting Savior that they need. I began to truly believe that. And it sparked in me a desire to take this Savior to them. You see, any lack of evangelistic passion and zeal is owing ultimately to a lack of faith. It's owing to the fact that we don't believe that Jesus is a perfectly fitting Savior for the world. That's what it's owing to. And that's what we need to have uprooted out of our hearts. And that's what the text is showing us this morning. That Jesus is not just a perfectly fitting Savior for us who believe, but for those in our lives who do not. They need him just as much as we do. And so let us leave here with our eyes fixed on Jesus, how perfect a Savior He is for us and how perfect a Savior He is for the world. Pray that God would sink that into your heart. We understand it, but do we believe it? Do we believe that Jesus is better, not just for us, but for everyone else? Pray with me. Father, you are so gracious to give us a Savior like Jesus. He is so perfect in every way. He meets every need. Through his perfect life of suffering, through his perfect death, 
through this glorious and perfect relationship that he establishes with us. Oh Lord, let our hearts gaze upon the glory of Jesus today and in the days to come. And as we do, God, by your spirit, uproot the unbelief from our hearts that would lead us to live unfaithful lives. Grow, Jesus, in our hearts and in our minds that our faith and our obedience to you might grow as well. We ask this all in the name of our perfectly fitting Savior, Jesus Christ, and for his glory. Amen.